Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Somehow it never fails that when you, uh, last Thursday night as we were getting into a rather interesting uh, passage, especially as I started breaking it apart grammatically, had a number of people with questions afterwards last time. So we're going back over that tonight. Of course, A, none of those people are here, which is typical. And B, well, Jeff had questions on Tuesday night. He didn't have questions about the class last Thursday night. He just generally has questions about existential things like why is, why is he here? Why is the sky blue? So, and then we're fighting, in case you're wondering, we're fighting uh, uh, graduations tonight. So there's a bunch of people, St. Thomas is graduating and that. So it's like, uh, wow, what happened? Okay, um, I don't have any announcements. Alan, you don't have any announcements? We have anything? Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word uh, this evening, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Uh, if we confess our sins, Scripture says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have the opportunity to gather tonight to just fellowship around your word and to be strengthened and encouraged by your word, recognizing that uh, your word tells us everything we need to know in relation to understanding, interpreting life, that we can take the principles that we learn, that we can put those into uh, practice and application in our lives. And as we face the various challenges and difficulties in life, that that your word gives us the, the strength and the understanding to be able to go forward with with happiness in our soul and joy, and for that we're grateful. We pray that you would in, help us to understand the things we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, if you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we will begin to um, go through this passage. Now, last time I pointed out that as I started uh, studying this last week, that there were some things about this passage that began to... Uh, uh, sort of uh, impress itself on me in a new way. I think when we read many passages in Scripture, especially those verses that are very familiar and verses we perhaps have memorized at times and uh, passages that uh, give us uh, uh, encouragement, give us hope, uh, we often take them at sort of a face value from the English. And while we can learn many things and many accurate things, 
when we study the Scripture in English. The Bible was not originally written in English. It was originally written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And often when we read anything in translation, something somehow gets lost. There's always something that doesn't quite come across, and there are fine points, nuances of grammar and word meanings, word plays, puns, sarcasm, humor that often get lost in in a translation. And so that's why it's important to always study things in the original language. And the more a pastor studies in the original language, the more we study the, the language, the more we learn, and, uh, and it helps us to understand various things that are going on. Now, as we were entering into this last time, I pointed out that this marks the conclusion to a rather long section that began in, in, the, uh, in chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins the fifth section in the book of Hebrews and begins to lay out some basic teaching in chapter 11 related to faith. And what the writer of Hebrews is is talking about is faith has to do with a belief that something is true. Now, you can't package that. You can't necessarily see it, measure it. Uh, You can't uh, quantify faith. I can't look at you and see whether you are believing something or not. That belief itself is an, it works itself out though in certain actions. And the faith or the beliefs that we have then relate to two things, as he says in verse one of chapter 11. Faith is the uh, substance uh, of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So when we look at what pers- what a person is believing and how that affects the way they live, then even though, as he's going to argue in this, in that whole chapter uh, of chapter 11, that even though the promise of God was not realized by those Old Testament saints, their belief in the promise of God as being true was never shaken. And as a result of that, even though they died before they saw it fulfilled, that doesn't mean it won't be fulfilled. And it, and it is evidence of the uh, their lives are evidence of the reality of what they believed. Now, we went through all of chapter 11, and now we come to this conclusion. And the conclusion begins, therefore, we also. So now the writer, ha- having gone through all of these illustrations, is now going to apply that to the way we think. And the first thing that he says is that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, the imagery here is the imagery of being in a stadium. And he's giving the reason uh, for the challenge, the reason for uh, the basic exhortation that he's going to make at the end of verse 1, which is to run, let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. And he says that part of the incentive and part of the, the encouragement that we have is that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, not that they are watching us. This isn't a verse that is that uh, uh, says that people in heaven are watching us. What it is talking about, and he used the word witnesses several times in the previous chapter, especially um, at the end in verse 39, all of these having obtained a good testimony or witness through faith, 
did not receive the promise. And so it is their lives and the knowledge of their lives and their witness that is what is an incentive to us. It is an example for us to strengthen us so that when we face difficult times and want to give up the Christian life and and uh, and uh, drop out, that we don't do that, but we hang in there and run the race with endurance. So we're encouraged by this great cloud of witnesses. And the idea that he uses here is is a... This cloud of witnesses is a term that is related to the games. And so here I have a picture. These are from uh, in Delphi in Greece, near which is where they had one of the Olympic Games. And this is the training area where the athletes would train. Now, interesting thing about the ancient uh, Greek games is they trained uh, and, did, and did all of their exercising and all of the competition was completely naked. They just stripped off all their clothes and did, they did everything in the nude. And so we have a actually have a verb that has to do with discipline in, in the Greek, gumnazo, which basically has that connotation of stripping everything off so that you're not hindered. Today we have high-tech clothes and all kinds of different uh, types of uh, gear that athletes wear in order to minimize uh, any kind of uh, ex- extra friction uh, with the air, anything that causes them to slow down that will uh, reduce their time, things like that. And in the ancient world, the only thing they knew they could do was just take everything off so that they would not be by, be hindered by clothes or by tunics or something that would get in the way. So this was the training area at Delphi where the athletes would train and every day they went through extremely rigorous procedures, and if they failed, then that was it. They would not get an opportunity to compete in the games. Now, this is the uh, racetrack, the uh, stadium there at Delphi, and you see you have the stands all on the right, and this is what this picture is, is that somehow he, the writer of Hebrews is just using this as an image that all of those who have gone before us are the ones that are in the stands. And we are able to perform in the field of competition because of all that we have learned from those who have gone before us who have surmounted the same challenges, obstacles, difficulties that we face. And because of what they have done, that is a source of strength and encouragement to us that none of us go through life without facing the same basic kinds of problems and difficulties that others have faced uh, before us. And so we all have to run the race, and we are all eventually judged, and this is the bima. The bima is a Greek word, actually comes also comes over from a, uh, a Hebrew word, and it's the judgment seat. And so this is the bima. You can see that these... Um, uh, the, this area that stands is very different from the other benches in the uh, in the stands, and this is where the judges would sit uh, to judge the contest. Uh, this is a little different slot. This is uh, from the games at Isthmia. These this, these are the starting blocks, uh, starting block area that they set up uh, at Isthmia, and then this is the starting blocks that are still there at uh, at Delphi. So the imagery here for the incentive for the believer is that there have been hundreds and hundreds of believers before us who have trusted in the promise of God. They didn't see the fulfillment in their lives, but that doesn't mean it won't be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled yet in the future. And as they hung in there, 
and we're not defeated by opposition or by challenges or by difficulties, we can too. And they are, therefore, an encouragement to us. Now, when we get into the next part of this verse, this is where we're going to get into the, some things that are uh, a little bit technical uh, because we have to bring in some Greek grammar because Greek grammar and English grammar are basically not the same. And even though it may translate over in a similar way, the nuances in an English construction are not the same as in a Greek construction. And so you can read this in the English, and you're going, to make, you're going to think it says something that it's not saying. So let's just run that up here. First of all, we read uh, the command is given with reference to the challenge. The main challenge comes at the end in the English, to let us run with endurance. Now, you're probably scratching your head and say, wait a minute. Earlier in the, that uh, last clause or in the middle of the verse, it says, let us lay aside every weight. See, that looks like an, that's the, the, in English, the let us lay aside and the let us run are both expressed in an English uh, first-person hortatory command. Trouble is, you only have one hortatory command in the Greek. You don't have two. The first word is a participle. And so you don't, you shouldn't translate it, uh, the same way. So we're to run a race. We'll come back to the grammar in a minute. We're running a race. And the word for race here is not the one that we might expect. Rather, it's the word agon, which indicates a struggle, a contest. Sometimes it's used for a race, but it indicates that there's going to be some challenges, some difficulties to, uh, surmount. And we're going to need to make sure that we are focused on the uh, task at hand. Now, the third thing that we see in the verse is how we're able to run the race. So the command is that let us run. And as I pointed out last time, in, um, in English we call that, or in grammar, that's called a hortatory subjunctive because we don't have a first-person imperative. And in the Greek, they didn't have a first-person imperative either, so they used a subjunctive to communicate that idea. And I illustrated that last time when I played that little clip from uh, uh, Churchill's speech where he uh, concluded the speech by saying that, uh, you know, let us, there, let us go forward into the... Uh, let, us, let us go forward together with our united strength. Now, that was a command to the English people. That wasn't a suggestion that maybe we will and maybe we won't. And that first-person construction let us uh, softens it a little bit, but nevertheless, it's still a strong, a strong command. And so we have this uh, structure here, let us lay aside every burden and run. Some translations repeat the let us in both places, but it indicates in English that there are two different commands. One is you have to lay aside whatever the hindrance is. You have to lay aside the weight. You have to lay aside the uh, encumbrance. You have to lay aside the burden, whatever it is. You have to lay that aside. And the second thing that you have to do is you have to run. However, if you think that there's those are two commands, then you would be definitely wrong. 
What we have to do is look at the grammar here. This is really a very interesting uh, piece of grammar because it impacts, and it's very similar to other verses that are very important, and it shed light on what's going on in this particular command. The verb here for lay aside is the Greek verb apotithemi, and this is an aorist participle. And when you have it, it's important to note the grammar because the uh, participle really doesn't carry time on its, in its own way. The time comes from the main verb. And the, when you have an aorist participle, the action of the participle precedes the action of the, of the uh, main verb. When it's a present tense, it's at the same time as the action of the main verb. And if it's a future tense participle, then the action of the participle comes after the action of the main verb. So by the fact that this is an aorist participle, what does that tell you? That you have to perform the, the action of this participle before you perform the action in the main verb. Now, the main verb is treco, which is a uh, present tense verb. And it meaning to basically just a simple word to run, but the important thing is the grammar. And so just on this part of the grammar alone, it shows that you have to lay aside before you run. Now, when you think about it, that makes perfect sense in light of how athletes perform. They would take off all of their clothes before they would walk out and get into the starting blocks. They don't get out into the starting blocks and start running the race and then say, wait a minute, I've got too many clothes on, and then start pulling their tunic off and pulling off other parts of their clothing and then somehow uh, get down to bare necessities halfway around the track the first time. So they would completely disrobe and take off everything that might hinder them or slow them down before they would even begin the race. And that's clear from the, from the grammar here. So, and there's an, also another aspect of this that's, that's important. And so <clears throat> make sure you get the point. In Greek grammar, the action of the aorist participle, which is to lay aside, precedes the action of the verb to run. Also, this kind of construction, which is called a participle of attendant circumstance, is used when the participle is setting up the necessary condition that must be met before the command can be enacted. Now, the way most of us read this is we look at this and we read the command to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and we immediately interpret that as we have to start do stop committing certain sins, and we have to start cleaning up our life in the process of running with endurance. That's how we read that on the surface. The reason I'm breaking this down grammatically is because if you take the look at the illustration from racing, that doesn't work at all. And that's what, where the grace and the joy for the Christian life really comes into play. As I pointed out last time, if you take it that way, then what you are saying is just a pure work salvation like almost every religious system in the world except for Christianity. Christianity says there's no way you can take all the sin off, all the encumbrances off. There is no way you can eradicate sin in your life, which is what causes the 
hindrance between us and God, there's no way you can do that. It is impossible. That is why a substitute was necessary. That is why God had to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross, that he paid the penalty for sin so that the burden for sin falls on him and not on us, and we simply accept or believe in his, salva- in his death on the cross for our salvation, and that's the starting point. But see, this is written as a gospel tract to unbelievers. This is written to those who are already saved. They're already believers. But after salvation, we still sin. We still have a sin nature. We still continue to sin, and we will always continue to sin. There'll never be a time when we reach moral perfection. So how do we deal with it? I mean, if we read this at first glance, like most people want to take it, then that would indicate that we have to eradicate sin in our life completely before we can start running the race. That's how the grammar sets it up. But there's no way you or I can ever do that. That is impossible. So how? Do, how what's the application here? Well, let's look at two other verses in the in the New Testament that are structured the same way. And we're going to learn that this is just expressing a basic principle that we have taught and taught and taught again and again until you're probably sick of it. James 1.21. So if you want to turn there, it's just about four pages to your right from uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 12. And James 1 is a, another important verse, and the context of James 1 is very similar to the context of, of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, too, is going to say that, that um, we need to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Two key ideas, joy and endurance. And then... Um, Later on, when we get down into the uh, into verse three, we read, Let, "Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." Those are major themes in the epistle to James. James starts off in James one two, saying, "My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials." See, the focus here is on the real joy and happiness that you have in the Christian life. And this is one of the things that should distinguish Christians from non-Christians, but the trouble is a lot of Christians don't know how to really implement this in their thinking. And so they end up hitting difficulties and trials and uh, challenges in life, and they sound just as, uh, they throw the same pity party that, that unbelievers do. They're, they're not real, they don't really understand how this is supposed to transform the way they think. Now, so in verse 2, we have the theme of joy. Then in verse 3, we read, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And it's the same word there. King James, New King James translates it patience, but it's the word hupomene that we have in Hebrews 12. So we have joy, we have endurance there. And then as you read through uh, James and you come to James 5, when he comes back to this theme, you have the same idea, don't grow weary. Uh, so we have to we we see that the same ideas are covered here. Now, when we look at James one twenty one, James says, and he's talking to believers all through James. He's addressing uh, brethren, my brethren, my brethren, my beloved brethren. 
it's very clear that James is addressing those who have already trusted in Jesus as their Savior. So he's not talking to them about how to be saved. He's talking to them about now that you're saved, this is how you have to live your life. This is how you can go forward in the, in, in the spiritual life. So in verse 21 he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Now, if I were giving you a quiz, I would say write down uh, the command in that verse. And you would all write down lay aside and you would be wrong because in English that that's an, it looks like a command. But in the Greek, that's the same kind of construction we had in Hebrews 12. It's a participle. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, which is somewhat better than the old King James superfluity of naughtiness. And it really means an excess of the, the excess that sin is in a Christian's life. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the excess of sin our wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we have two commands here, or two statements here, two key words, lay aside, which is the participle, and receive, which is the command. And and so I colored those a little differently so that you can see them, the, the yellow for lay aside and the receive for the command. Now, what do you notice about that word lay aside? It's the same word that we have over in Hebrews 12, 1. Apotithemi, exact same word. Now, this word means to remove something, and it was used for, for example, this is a word you'd use if you were going to take your clothes off. It's removing something. So we're to remove sin, just like we take off a, a shirt and take off our pants and get ready to get in the shower, just to strip down. But you and I can't do that. So what is this talking about? It can't, it, 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 it's impossible for this to mean that you have to remove all sin from your life unless you just have a really superficial, shallow view of sin. Now, some people do. I've had conversations with people who said, you know, I haven't sinned in about 10 years. And um, I heard a conversation with a guy who had made that statement, and he was... Uh, all of a sudden, he had some problems with his computer one day, and he got real mad at his computer. And somebody said, "Well, wait a minute. You just—I'm just sorry you got—you so, did that. You just broke your ten-year record." This guy said, "Well, that wasn't a sin." You know, he's redefined sin as committing murder or adultery or uh, theft or something like that, but one of the big sins. But anger or losing your temper or jealousy or bitterness or resentment, any of those things, those aren't sins, arrogance especially. So um, what James is saying is, and what same thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying, is before you can receive with meekness or with humility the implanted word, you have to first of all take off the sin. So, if, if this means you have to become sinless before you can take in the word, then you know we can't do that. That's impossible. So it has to refer to something else. Now, a couple of other things about this passage. 
You have this same passage, the same structure of an aorist participle that precedes the action of the imperative. The imperative, the aorist imperative emphasizes a, a, a immediacy. It emphasizes the priority of the com- command to receive with meekness the implanted word, uh, which is able to save your souls. Now, a lot of people will look at that last phrase and say, oh, see, he's talking about salvation here. But that's only because in English, in evangelicalism, in English, we have taken the word save to be the umbrella term that refers to what Paul called justification. But the word sozo, which is the Greek word, is a basic word that means to deliver. Sometimes it means to heal. And sometimes it's used in the scriptures to refer as a synonym to justification. Sometimes it's used as a synonym for the spiritual life. Sometimes it's used for eventual uh, salvation when we are absent from this body and face-to-face with the Lord. And the way James uses the word is to refer to the spiritual life from the time that a person first trusts Jesus as Savior and is justified until the time that they are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. So we know this because... Remember, this is James 1.21. Just uh, four verses earlier, he says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's regeneration there. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So 1.18 is a reference to their regeneration or justification. 1.21 is talking about now that you have a new life, how are you going to save that life? And often the word uh, that is translated uh, soul there, suke, is often a, it's an idiom for life. And so James 1.21 should be translated that we have to receive the word because the word becomes the source of truth and power in growing. This is the same thing Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17. When he was praying to the Father in John 17, 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. And so it is the word of God that is the element that God uses to transform us and to uh, teach us so that we can live in such a way that we're going to honor and glorify him and that uh, rather than living self-destructive lives, uh, we will live happy and productive lives, and it's going to be grounded in the truth of his word. So what is James 1 saying? James 1 is saying, James 1 is saying that the key to the Christian life is learning and applying the word of God. Now, before you can learn the word of God effectively, you have to lay aside the sin that's there. But that doesn't, can't mean to stop sinning because otherwise none of us would ever get anywhere because none of us stop sinning. Now, Peter uses the same kind of construction over in another well-known passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, laying aside. Now, here the English writer, translator in, um, in First Peter translates the participle more like a participle instead of a command. He translates it l- l- with the ing, laying aside 
all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure, pure milk of the world, word that you may grow thereby. Okay, now, in the first verse, we have the word laying aside. Guess what word that is? Think we've seen it before? Same word, apotithemi. Means that something, we have to remove something. Okay, and here, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. And then the command is in the second verse, and that's the word desire. It's the aorist imperative of epipatheo, meaning to greatly desire. Now, if any, some of you have been mothers, and you know what it's like when you have a hungry baby. And that baby lets you know how it is demanding that you feed the baby and starts crying and screaming and yelling. And some of you get that way when you get hungry, even even now. Now, what the interesting thing is that I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but going on a long fast really has interesting effects on your appetite. And I remember years ago now when I graduated from seminary, one of our requirements was to take, we had to take an extra, somewhere along the line, an extra Christian education elective. And I really didn't like most of the electives that they were offering at Dallas, and, and it was getting close to the end, and I was like, how am I going to squeeze this in? I don't have time my last semester to take this course. What can I do? And then I remembered that... Um, that there was a course that Wheaton College up in Chicago offered. They had a large camping program in their Christian ministries department. And uh, they have a huge camping operation up at a, their main camp at Honey Rock up in, up in Wisconsin. And it was a wilderness leadership seminar. And it basically meant it was like an outward bound program. You got to go backpacking and canoeing out in the boonies for, and fishing and whatever for two weeks. And I thought, boy, that sound, that's a lot better than sitting in a seminary classroom again for uh, another two weeks or a semester. And so I found out that I, if I took that, I could get the credit transferred back, and that would count. So I got to get my last two hours of seminary credit by backpacking and canoeing across the uh, upper peninsula of, of uh, Michigan. They have mosquitoes there that are state birds. These things are huge. Well, we spent two, two and a half weeks out, and the last thing that they had the, the students do was to, we would come to the shore of Lake Superior. And Lake Superior has a uh, mean temperature of 32 and a half degrees. So it is just barely above freezing. And that's why it doesn't grow any um, kind of uh, bacteria or anything like that. So you can drink the water right out of the lake. And so the last three days of the trip, we were on a solo. And they would string us out along the, uh, along the beach, and everybody set up their tents, and we would get about 100 yards apart so nobody could see anybody or talk to anybody else, and everybody had a, a great deal of privacy. We were told to make sure we didn't take any, don't try to sneak any food, don't put a protein bar in your pack. The whole idea is to go for three and a half days with no food. And if you have food, you try to sneak it, you've got a big deterrent because there are bears in the woods. And the bears will smell whatever you have, and you don't want to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning 
with a bear sticking his nose in your tent, and all you have to fight him off with is a tin cup that you're drinking, using for drinking water. And so most people followed that wise advice and left all their food back at the base camp, so all of our packs with the food in it got attacked by the bears back at the base camp. But I didn't think, I mean, I was 28 years old at the time and thin and would eat everything that, that came in front of me, you know, eat, eat the horse, hooves, hide and all. And to go three and a half days without food, I thought was an impossibility. But the interesting thing was, was toward the evening of the second night, I wasn't hungry anymore. Your appetite begins to diminish. And by the third day, your appetite is gone. That's why when you read in the scriptures about Jesus and others going 40 days without food, you can do that. Your appetite will go away about the sometime during the second day and about the 38th or 39th day, because now it starts to become a little critical for your health, your appetite will then come back with a vengeance. But in between, you won't have an appetite. You need to drink a lot of water, which we did, but there was, there was no, no, um, no hunger. And I think this is what happens with a lot of Christians, is they're spiritual babies, and they don't ever get fed. They, nobody ever teaches them the word. And so they're starving to death, but their appetite goes away after a while because there's no one out there to give them anything that's really nourishing, and so they just don't have much of an appetite. But then somebody comes along and starts feeding them something. Then they start to get hungry because they want to learn the word. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people out there who are trying to really uh, substantively teach the word. Now, that's, that's what happens also when you go on a fast. I remember when we came off that fast, I had four breakfasts the first morning, and none of them were small. And I think I had three lunches, and then by the time I got back home, I think I went out to eat for dinner at 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and 9 o'clock. You just can't get enough. So the command here in verse 2 is that we are to have a strong desire for the milk of the word. And the focus there is on milk, not in contrast to meat, but on nourishment, because it is the word of God that nourishes us spiritually and enables us to grow spiritually. But there's a precondition, and that precondition is to lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. So how does that actually happen? Well, we pretty much, I hope I have made it clear by now that we can't think of that as we have to stop committing any and all sins because we can't do that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not saying we have to have a licentious or antinomian view towards uh, of morality where we can just, you know, just go on and sin and do whatever we want to uh, and not pay attention to a solid system of morals or ethics. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. Or, or, or Peter, or, or the writer of Hebrews, and again and again you have this. The way that we lay aside the sin that's in our life is through confession. We recognize the sin in our life. We go to the Lord. We confess our sin just as David does in Psalm 51. Uh, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11 when we come to the Lord's table that we're to examine ourselves to make sure that we are, are ready and prepared to go to the Lord's table. 
First uh, John obviously talks about it. First John one nine: If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We lay aside the sin that has gathered up, and when we confess that sin and it is removed, and we are washed clean. It's the same. It's depicted in the Old Testament in the life of the priest. We've gone over this before. This is the same thing Jesus is talking about in John 13 when he was preparing the disciples prior to observing the, uh, the, the Last Supper, the Passover. And he washed, washed their feet. And Pete, remember, Peter said, no, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And, Peter, and the Lord said, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you'll have no uh, part with me. And so Peter then said, no, wash my whole body. And, and Jesus responded and said, no, you have all been washed, indicating a full washing with the Greek word luo, except one of you. But I need to wash your feet. And the word for washing the feet is a different word, nipto, meaning to just wash a part of the body. Now, that was depicted in the Old Testament when the high priest was inaugurated into the priesthood. And he was bathed from head to foot. We studied that, I think it was Tuesday night. Uh, or, no, it was Sunday morning in, uh, in, in Second Kings when, with the reforms that Hezekiah brought to the temple. They had to rededicate the temple, rededicate the, the, the uh, priesthood. The, the high priest was washed from head to toe. But that only occurred once. That's comparable to when a person trusts Christ as their Savior they are completely forgiven positionally of sin, but they still we still commit sin, and so that has to be dealt with. And same thing with the priest; he's washed, but he's still going to do things that get his hands dirty and his feet dirty. And so then he, whenever he would come into the tabernacle or the temple, the first thing he would do is wash his hands at the labor and wash his feet at the labor. That is a picture, and, and the words that are used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, draw out this contrast using those same two words Jesus used in John chapter 13, drawing out that distinction between the full positional cleansing and forgiveness that occurs at salvation and then the wonderful fact that we actually are forgiven of sins, which bring, it brings us great joy, knowing that the sin doesn't have to entangle us, which is what is the problem here in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So the high priest would go through that same thing. So you have these images in the Old Testament. The same lesson is taught by Jesus to his disciples the night before he went to the cross. And then you have numerous passages that reinforce this as we go into the or into and through the New Testament. So let's go back to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Now Hebrews 12 states, let's go re- read it again. Therefore we also... Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. In other words, don't quit. Just because there's opposition, and this was uh, something that was going on in the uh, community that he's writing to, 
is that they are facing tremendous opposition because as Jewish priests who have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, they're coming under a lot of uh, rejection and hostility, and they're wanting to just give up and go back into Judaism. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you have to run that race that is endurance, focus on the ultimate prize, and don't be distracted by the things that are weighing you down. And you have to deal with the sin that's in your life, and so you have to lay that aside. And the way you lay it aside is through through confession. Now, does that mean that you confess and you just keep on doing it? No, I'm not saying that. But we're still going to commit sin. The fact that we will and the, is not an excuse and is not designed to excuse it, confession frees us to recover from failure. It's not an excuse to dwell in failure. Okay, verse 2. We get the next example of how we do this. Remember, we're still talking about how does he say we're to run the race. Well, first of all, we run it by laying aside every, every weight and the, the sin that easily encumbers us. And, and I, I like the way the NET translates that. Uh, it's, it's the, it translates it the sins that, it's not like the sins that you're most likely to commit, which is how most people understand that. Uh, these are the sins that, it's the sin that clings to you almost inseparably. And that's the idea there, because we have sin we're never going to get rid of. We're never going to stop certain things in our life, because that's just your, the trend of your sin nature. That doesn't mean you, you, you're, you're not going to fight it. That doesn't mean you're not going to uh, give it up. It means that you don't have to always feel defeated by it, and you can have real joy because you have real forgiveness in Christ, and so you can, whenever you fail, great, I'm forgiven, let's move on, and then you focus on something else. And the focus comes in verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Okay, looking unto Jesus is, the, is again, another participle, and it's a participle of means indicating that we run with endurance by looking unto Jesus. He is the example. And so by looking at him, and it's not just a verb. The verb here isn't just talking about looking at him with your eyes. It's a verb that indicates mental focus and understanding, that we are focused on who Jesus is. We understand who he is. We understand the dynamics of his life, and then we are uh, focusing on that. It is a the Greek word is aphorao, which means to uh, look at, to to think about, to meditate on. It has a range of meanings. The the literal meaning is to look at, but it's used metaphorically in terms of the object of our concentration. So we're to concentrate on Jesus, who is then said to be the the author and the finisher of our faith. And the words that are used here, I think I have a slide here with these two words for you. Maybe I, maybe I didn't get that on there. No, I didn't. The author and finisher of our faith, and this, this first word that's used here for author is archegos, and it's used to mean prince, it's used to mean leader, it's used to mean ruler, but it has a very important usage. Just hold your place here and turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Let's let the author define the use of the word within his own context. In Hebrews 2.10, he says, For it was fitting for him, referring to Christ, um, uh, him here is referring to the Father. For it was fitting for him, the Father, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is, those who are brought to salvation, who are brought to heaven, to make the captain of their salvation, and that's that word archegos, is the captain of their salvation. He is the, in, in the leader, and it has the idea of one who is, um, is the first in a series. He is the one who is laying down a pattern. He is, some people translate this, he is the pioneer. So he is the pioneer of their salvation, and that word salvation is not, again, the writer of Hebrews doesn't use it as a synonym for justification, but for the spiritual life, because Jesus didn't, didn't the, the parallel here has to do with, with growing to spiritual maturity, not with justification, uh, being justified before God. So in <clears throat> bringing many sons to glory, to make the pioneer of their salvation, that is their spiritual life, Perfect, again, it's the same word we use in, uh, that we'll find, the same root we find in um, Hebrews 12.2. And that's from the, from the root teleos, meaning complete. He's going to make the, uh, the uh, pioneer of their salvation complete through suffering. So in Hebrews 12.2, we are to focus on Jesus, the pioneer and the finisher, that's the, the word there. The form here is teleotes, and it has the idea of someone who brings something to completion, brings something to, uh, to the finish line, and he is the one who uh, sums up our faith. So we focus on Jesus, the pioneer and the finisher of our faith, the one who's brought to completion our faith, who for the joy... That was set before him. Now, when we think about what Jesus Christ went through on the cross and all the suffering that, that he went through before the cross, the beatings, uh, the revilings, the uh, physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the verbal abuse, all of that, that that's going on as he's being ridiculed by the soldiers and beaten uh, unmercifully by the soldiers and whipped by the soldiers, he endures all of that because there's something beyond the cross. There is something he's, he's enduring the cross for, and that's an ultimate joy beyond that, which involved both what he would accomplish in bringing salvation to the world and that he would be then promoted uh, to heaven where he would ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. So we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy or because of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, which is the most shameful death he could have gone through in the culture of that time, the worst form of death, the most shameful form of death in a Jewish culture was crucifixion. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Now that is a fascinating word there that we have in the English. To despise means to have 
contempt for. And 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 it was used in the word was used in Old English as a preposition for to express the idea of in spite of something. So that, and we get this from the Old English with the King James, who for the joy that was set for, before him, in, we could say, despite the shame. Or he had, he, the shame and the embarrassment wasn't a factor. He was more focused on the mission than any, uh, than the embarrassment of the, of the cross. With the result that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here we have the connection of these two ideas, joy and endurance. Same thing we have in James chapter 1, that we are to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and then endurance has its maturing result. So let's plug this in to understand what the writer of Hebrews is, um, is saying for us. Therefore, we also... In light of the fact that there are all of these other believers that we have in history that have set a standard for us, and in light of their consistency, let us lay aside all of the baggage, all of the sin that wipes out our spiritual life. The only way we can do that is through confession of sin. And run with endurance the race set before us. And the race set before us has to do with living out the spiritual life in obedience to God. And we do that by having our focus on Jesus, who had to go through a degree of suffering and opposition and hostility far beyond anything we can imagine. Now, that may not be our circumstance. We may not be facing a lot of opposition, and we may not be facing hostility and rejection from people, but that's what the original audience of the book of Hebrews was facing. They were facing rejection, hostility, and tremendous opposition from friends and family because they were being viewed as traitors to Judaism because they were trusting in Jesus as their Messiah. And so the writer of Hebrews says that, look at Jesus, we, we do not suffer, we do not have the rejection, we do not face the hostility that he faced when you look at everything he endured leading up to the cross, and then on the cross, when the sin of the world is poured out upon him, and up until that point he had not said one word, not one thing had come from his mouth. Isaiah 53 said that, predicted that the Messiah would be like a lamb before its shearers would be dumb, would not speak, would be mute. And this was Jesus until he was on the cross and when the Father imputed the sin of the world to him and the perfect, impeccable, sinless Jesus Christ received that imputation of sin. That is when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, it, and the forsaken wasn't that he's rejected by God, but that he is judicially separated because at that point, as Paul put it, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And so we can face whatever trials, whatever obstacles, whatever opposition we face, and we can have joy in the midst of it, not running around like some martyr 
how horrible life is, how terrible the kids are, or the friend, whoever it is that's giving us grief, how terrible it is to live in this economy or whatever. And we focus, we can have joy because we understand God is in control. Now, that becomes the basic focus of the next verse. Just preview of coming attractions. Preview of coming attractions in verse 3, for consider, and then again we have this word that indicates mental focus. Consider him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted in bloodshed, striving against sin. You haven't faced near the opposition yet, therefore how can you, how can you give up when you haven't resisted to the, near the degree of opposition and difficulty that he faced. And then we'll get to verse 5. So the focus on the next section, down through verse 11, deals with endurance and deals with uh, moving forward despite the obstacles. So we'll come back next time and advance forward in Hebrews uh, 12, and we'll get a little bit further down, maybe even down to about the middle of the chapter as we continue our progression. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, and we just pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things and to think them through, and that we might be encouraged and strengthened and have the real joy of our salvation, because we know that uh, whatever uh, difficulties, trials, tests, whatever adversity we face in life, you're in control, and we know that we can rest and relax and have real uh, joy in this life because of that. And, Father, we pray that we might keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as our pattern, as the one for whom we live and who has set the, uh, who has pioneered the pathway for us and set the pattern that we might live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.